Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing a director analysis on Rob Reiner. He had a legendary streak of amazing films in the 80s and 90s, arguably the best streak of any director. And this week we'll be focusing on the first half of that streak. Today we'll be starting with Reiner's directorial debut, This is Spinal Tap, and then we'll discuss his back-to-back classics of Stand By Me and The Princess Bride. to talk about some news, although there's not much going on in the industry outside of the strikes, but there are a lot of new releases that have come out in the past month, things like Reservation Dogs and its third and final season, Only Murders in the Building with season three, there was a new trailer for the Scott Pilgrim Netflix anime that's coming looks out. looks fantastic, it looks fantastic. Witcher season three just concluded, and that obviously is the send-off for Henry Cavill as uh, the main character there. Special Ops Lioness on Paramount Plus, a new Taylor Sheridan show starring Zoe Saldana and Nicole Kidman and Morgan Freeman, all those folks. There's Hijack over on Apple TV with Idris Elba, and then Foundation Season 2 also on Apple TV. So of all those things, Mm -hmm. you mentioned Scott Pilgrim, you're excited for anything else that piques your interest or you want to watch or are watching? Not even close. Nope, not really. I saw the first season of Only Murders in the Building, and I liked it, and then I didn't really keep up with it. So I haven't seen season two, and I probably won't see season three until I see season two, of course. So maybe I'll watch it, maybe I won't. Who knows? Uh, The rest of them, not really. I I didn't keep up with The Witcher. My dad's watching The Witcher right now, so he's probably (laughs) excited for season three. Uh, And everything else is just sort of meh. I'm going to look into special ops, though, because I do like Taylor Sheridan. So perhaps... Interesting. Have you seen any of his shows, though? I have like any not. Of his, when his shift into doing Yellowstone and then all the spinoffs for that. I, I kind of so want far. to. I kind of want to because they sound really good. I've been told they're very, 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 very good, especially the spinoffs, which is odd. Mm-hmm. It's odd for the spinoffs to be good. Right. So I'm kind of curious, especially since one of them has Harrison Ford. True. But very true. But, I mean, that means I'd have to get a Paramount Plus subscription, and then I'd have to watch it. And that's a very big time commitment, so probably not right now. Gotcha. Uh, for me, Res Dogs, mm-hmm. I have seen the first two seasons of that, so I will probably in the near future get around to checking out the final season, season three. So it's a nice show. I like it. Very unique. Uh, so I'll definitely try and keep up with that. Only Murders in the Building. I still haven't gotten around to that yet. Although right. I'll try and do it soon. Season three, it's got Meryl Streep. Craziness. Yeah. There's huge names attached to that. So yeah. at some Blow point, up. I'll get around to it. But For sure. Yeah. All right, let's now let's move our... on to the box office breakdown for August 11th to the 13th. Still in first place, Barbie. $33.8 million. So... Again, holding on to the crown. Following close behind, not really, was Oppenheimer with 18.8 million. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem with 15 million. Meg 2 The Trench takes a bite out of the box office with 12.8 million. 
Last Voyage of the Demeter with $6.5 million. Haunted Mansion with $5.8 million. Talk to Me, $5.1. Sound of Freedom with $4.8 million, which brings us domestic total to $172 million. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Biting at its heels with $4.6 million. So close. I know. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny with 921000 also bringing its domestic total to $172 million, like Sound of Freedom. There you go. So crazy that Sound of Freedom will have a higher domestic gross than an Indiana Jones film. Who yeah. would have guessed? And that runs out the top 10, but no longer in the top 10, just exiting this week. Elemental, getting 745000 bringing its domestic total to $150 million, and its worldwide total to $440 million. That's pretty good, so, actually. Yeah, a really solid... Uh, performance when in the very beginning it seemed like it was going to be an abysmal flop but its legs were incredible and it brought it to I mean it'll probably end up right near 500 million worldwide so that's very impressive yeah good job Pixar I mean it was the only animated movie out for quite a while so you know if you wanted to take your kids to the movies that's what you were seeing Mm -hmm. so they picked the right time to release it and it just happened to work out Absolutely. All right. Now for the predictions for August 18th to the 20th. Two new films coming out. Yet another entry in the DCEU slash DCU. We don't know. It's up in the air. Blue Beetle coming out. And then Strays, a comedy about talking dogs, a raunchy comedy with the talking dogs. So Blue Beetle, what do you think that'll get? Like... 20 something million 23 24 very good prediction there incredible i would hope that it would get to 30 million you'd so hope we'll try and be optimistic and say that it can get there even though i have a bit of a feeling that it won't <laughs> but <laughs> we'll see strays what do you think that'll get probably less than 10 million i would agree I with that assessment i also i mean I just don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> Who asked for this movie? I mean, it's got Will Ferrell, Jamie Foxx, but yeah. this seems like a decade and a few years too late, right? But it's it's who are they marketing this to? Like nobody watches these kinds of movies anymore. Even the kids' versions, like Beverly yeah. Hills. If they made a Beverly Hills Chihuahua movie today, it still it would not make any money, right? So who are they? The Beethoven, uh, yeah. Dog films, yeah. This movie should have come out ten years. It probably would have made. Three times as much as the box office that came out on the heels of those movies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Way too late. It should have just been a cartoon movie. Like, it should have been animated. Agreed. Yeah. All right. Now let's begin our director analysis on Rob Reiner. So he, of course, before becoming a director, was a part of the sitcom All in the Family. That was throughout the 70s. He was meathead slash mike on there mm-hmm. um so i mean that was i don't know the exact numbers but i'm pretty sure that was like the biggest sitcom it was uh, the number one watch sitcom for five years there you go from 71 to 76 the number one watch sitcom so he was meathead for a long long time still is to many many people <laughs> is very much meathead before he did all in the family though he was uh he studied film at UCLA, so he had a leg up when he left All in the Family, was able to start making movies in the early 80s, starting with This is Spinal Tap, which is, of course, such a, a rocket into the industry. What a what a fantastic, fantastic film. And he followed that up with 
several, several classic hits. And then in 87, was lucky enough to found Castle Rock Entertainment, which would go on to produce many, many movies, including Shawshank Redemption. Of course, it was named after the fictional main town in the Stephen King novels, which, of course, was named after the big mountain in Lord of the Flies. (laughs) And now, fortunately, many, many years after Castle Rock Entertainment has been founded, he has retained position as CEO of Castle Rock and has been given hundreds and hundreds of millions of funding from multiple different partners and different acquisitions. It is now producing more and more films now that he has more money, including a This is Spinal Tap 2, a a documentary by Albert Brooks, and a sequel to Wind River. Interesting. Yeah, right? It's called Wind River, The Next Chapter. Huh. Currently in production. Isn't that odd? It is, yeah, a little bit odd. I've never seen that yet, although it's definitely been on the list because I know it's very uh, highly acclaimed. Mm-hmm. But it didn't strike me as a film that would get a sequel. So me neither. It, I don't think I didn't think it would, but I guess people really liked it and they thought it would make a really good uh, sequel. It's getting it's being directed by Carrie Scogland, who did many episodes of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay, <laughs> so she's no directing Wind River: The Next Chapter. And it's got a few of the characters from the first movie, but a lot of new faces like Jason Clark. All right. Fascinating. I'll be on yeah. the lookout for that. And I'm going to be on the lookout for this is Spinal Tap too. Me too. That I mean, after watching this first one, I was like, why haven't we gotten another one? This feels like something that I, like, I'd be down for and that everyone else seems like they would absolutely right. want to jump on. So the fact that it's taken this long for them to go for the sequel... It's kind of kind of crazy, but I'm glad that we seem like we're finally going to get it. Thank God, finally. I mean, I am beyond excited. Beyond. Yeah. Now, of course, the reason we're talking about Rob Ryan is because he had one of the most legendary streaks of any director of all time in the late 80s and the first few years of the 90s. And I mean, year after year, talk about absolute hits. He starts <laughs> with Spinal Tap. Then he makes a movie called The Sure Thing, which we're not going to talk about because I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't either. So that's the fascinating thing about this is like there's definitely a streak there, but whether or not Spinal Tap gets included with it is, you know, up to whether or not The Sure Thing is arguing about it because we don't know if The Sure Thing, that's not one that's usually in the conversation when they talk about the streak. So either yeah. skipped over and people just say like, oh, Spinal Tap to Stand By Me. Um, or it just starts at Stand By Me. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. We'll have to, if we can ever catch it. I feel like I would like it. Like, I like the concept of it. But, you know, of all the movies on this list, it's the one that's not a sure thing. (laughs) Drastic. After that, he made Stand By Me. And then the next year made The Princess Bride. And then the next year made When Harry Met Sally, the greatest rom-com ever made. And I think he skipped a year. And then he made Misery and then A Few Good Men. Like, talk about absolute bangers. So, Ryan... Before we started watching these movies for this director analysis, and of course, part two that we're doing in a little bit, which of these movies had you seen? The uh, middle section, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally. So you have not seen Misery or A Few Good Men or Spinal Tap? Correct. Bro, how could you not have seen A Few Good Men? You are like, you are the biggest fan of the Sorkmeister. I am. We did an Aaron Sorkin writer analysis. Did we not talk about A Few Good Men? You had talked about it briefly, but... That's I right. couldn't comment on it too much because I hadn't seen it yet. That's right. And so now, soon, not this episode, but the next 
part of our director analysis, we will finally be able to discuss a few good men. Finally, also I talk am about quite excited for. Talk about talking about the the Sorkinator. I just recently rewatched Moneyball while I was at work and I was bored. And my God, what a what a phenomenal movie! I mean, just one of the best. I love Moneyball. Dude, the Sorkster, he's got it, man. I mean, his his films that he writes are incredible. The directing yeah. thing. I mean, we talk about that in another thing, but. Um, what I think is fascinating looking at this list of just like the legendary streak that he has here is Rob Reiner isn't a writer director for the most part. He's Mm -hmm. a director that's adapting these already established works, right? Like stand by me, princess bride, misery, few good men. So he's got Sorkin a couple times. He has few good men after the streak because North in 1994, that was the combo breaker. Destroyed his uh his amazing streak there. Rest have you seen peace. North? By the way, have you? I have not. Have you watched it? I haven't either. It's like extremely hated, apparently. Really? <laughs> Which is so, yeah. But we should watch think, it so that oh, we can see how the that's streak. That's what I'm saying too. Of like what went wrong because it seems right up his alley. I mean, it's a comedy. You got a young like Elijah Wood in there. Um, it it's like a kid that's trying to like find new parents like he's upset with his current parents so he goes to court and basically whatever the parallel would be for a kid like divorcing the parents of like getting there is an actual term isn't it where you uh, emancipation like yeah emancipation yeah um but this kid's like 10 or 11 so obviously wouldn't be able to do that but the judge is like yeah go try and find new parents and if you can then you can go live with them mm-hmm. so he goes out on that adventure and does that so it seems like it would be something that Rob Reiner, who obviously has a, an amazing background in comedy, we'll talk about that, especially with these uh, films in today's part, um, how that's such a clear present element in his films. Seems like that would have been a shoo-in for yet another hit, but yeah. it absolutely was not. Yeah. Um, but then right after that, he had another Sorkin uh, collaboration with the American president. So... He mm-hmm. has a lot of these adaptations of already established yeah. works, but a few of them, like Spinal Tap, and I think When Harry Met Sally as well, although he had a collaborator on that, who I imagine mm. was uh, very critical in yeah, it was Nora Ephron. being able to do what it she's is. Like, yeah, she's like, like the, the, the romance queen. Yeah. writer, yeah. yeah. The um, most famous. So that, I think, is an interesting element. It's always fascinating when we have like writer-directors versus just directors mm-hmm. don't really dabble too much in the writing obviously they yeah. have some say they'll collaborate closely like hitchcock was known for that but he was not the writer he wasn't the person mm-hmm. with the writing credit um people like yeah. scorsese and spielberg are also yeah. like that most of the time so it's it's always fascinating when we get those um the people that don't necessarily come up with the stories or write it all out but they do bring it to life and they film it in a way that allows it to be so effective. Mm-hmm. So, and Rob Reiner it. definitely falls into that category. I mean, he mm-hmm. is part of this streak has to do with being very selective and being very lucky and that he's choosing these very, very talented writers who have these great stories and like choosing these stories to adapt and knowing exactly what he wants to do. And the other part is that he's just a very, very talented filmmaker and he knows exactly how he wants the style to be in each movie. And he knows exactly how to uh, t- pull on your heartstrings, really. Like very, very good at it. And so, I mean, 
we get this incredible streak of movies. I mean, it's just so bizarre. You think of all these great filmmakers, Spielberg and Scorsese and, and Tarantino and all these people. And you think like, you know, one of these people, especially Scorsese, who for a while was making a movie a year, similar to Rob Reiner, you would think that they would have more of a streak. But every like three or four movies, there's like a, a dinghy or like a, 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 a hole in the boat or whatever. And Rob Reiner here is just killing it year after year for like six years. Right. It's crazy. Making a movie a year alone is very, very daunting, let alone making six literal classics. Bro, that's crazy. Absolutely. That's insane. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I can affirm for sure that there is a streak, at least up until Misery. Since I haven't seen that yet, can't comment on whether that upholds the streak. But you, Bro, have you already seen misery. all of these films? I've seen all of them, except The Sure Thing. But, I mean, nobody's seen The Sure Thing, apparently. <laughs> I would love to, maybe I'll be able to find it somewhere you know, it's in anticipation for our part two. But I just, I don't think I'm going to find it. The only thing I could find was buying a DVD from Amazon for like $15. I don't know if right. I want to do that. Yeah. Like, not the most ideal situation with that. But no. hopefully at some point it will... <laughs> show up somewhere on a streamer or I mean, we have to do the old fashioned way go to some video stores and hope we can find it somewhere. Um, Bro, this days like these are, are the times I wish I had a blockbuster still, you know, you walk in, you look for the comedy section, you look for S for the sure thing, try and find it. God, if only. <laughs> so, uh, another thing to bring up with Rob Reiner, um, his style I think is an interesting thing to talk mm -hmm. about because with some of those filmmakers we mentioned before, like Spielberg, um, like Scorsese, they do have very definite styles or like thematic elements that are always present in their works with Reiner. I don't know if that is as prominent, which is also why it is interesting that this streak of films was so successful. I think there's a clear uh, unifying force for all those films, which is, the humor and the heart, him obviously having that comedy background. Um, he's able to inject that in, in ways that are very effective, um, but also don't detract from, at least, you know, in Princess Bride and Stand By Me, don't detract from the actual sentiment that he's trying to go for. Like when he's trying to shift into creating genuine emotions, that stuff all lands, um, which is amazing. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. nowadays with, like, the MCUification of all these big films, there's yeah. a real issue with, like, genuine heart and genuine motion coming through. Because it always I'm surprised they never tried to tap in Rob Reiner for one of those movies. I know, yeah. I think they would. Um, but, yeah, good on him, though, for not uh, succumbing to Feige's little uh, luring him in with the paycheck. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, so that, I think, is a striking element of these films, is it has that humor. It is very funny, hilarious, ridiculous in many of these mm -hmm. parts, but then it is able to shift into being slightly more serious or having genuine pathos to go along with um, the wackiness. So yeah. that I think is very much present. Um, there's one other thing dealing with, uh, which just for these three films that we are talking about in this episode, I don't know if it continues for all the ones uh, for the next episode that we'll do on him, but he has, he always starts out these films with a framing device where there's a narrator or mm -hmm. a storyteller that's speaking directly to the audience or just cluing us into the fact that 
like we are about to see a fictional story and it's contextualizing what's going on with it. Um, and I think that is just a fascinating element that is present in each of these three films. Yeah. I think it's interesting because not only is there like that element to it, but also most of these stories are adaptations of things that he's read. So I think he's very interested, not just in the story itself, but the the nature of storytelling, like mm-hmm. how you're going about telling the story to the audience, which is something that not a lot of directors want to do. A lot of directors want to stay hidden. They want to make it feel like you're watching real life. They don't want to call attention to the storytelling. Exactly. And I think the thing that I like about Rob Reiner so much is that he is very defiant of that and like demands that the storytelling be a part of the story itself and that you are aware of how the story is being told and why it's being told. And I like that a lot because I've always had an affinity for filmmakers who care a lot about, you know, making the storytelling be a part of the story itself. Like Wes Anderson does this a lot with including a little imperfection in his films or including that narrative device in his films or like even Scorsese will have narration a lot of the times in order to make it feel like a story that's being told. I think that just, I think it's just a style that I like. It's a style that I think works on a lot of levels. And I just, I feel like Rob Reiner was definitely like hitting a stride with it here. That, and then I think the stylism of his films being very dedicated to a lot of old Hollywood things, him being a person who spent so long working on a a sitcom in the 60s or 70s. I mean, having that experience of working on real sets instead of working like on location, a lot of these movies have big dramatic sets that also like separate from being uh, uh, sets themselves, but they are cartoonish in a, in a way that is like a fifties movie or like a forties movie that you would see that calls attention to the storytelling once again, in a similar fashion to like how he's having a narrator take over. And mm-hmm. I think that's interesting too, like especially the princess bride with the extravagant sets that they have that are designed to work with the film and to, to work with the choreography of the film. I just think it works really, really well. Right. Awesome. Let us now jump in to his directorial debut. This is Spinal Tap. So what is very fascinating about this one is the whole mockumentary style that is so dominant. I'm sorry, you said what? The mockumentary. You said what? The rockumentary. Thank you. My apologies. The uh, mocky rockumentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, which of course, I mean, very dominant now. I mean, The Office, I guess, can be credited as repopularizing it mm-hmm. um, along with Parks and Rex, and not like everything did it and everything still does it. But back in 84, I mean, it had existed, but this, I guess, is the thing that absolutely launched it into mainstream as something that can be done to tell a story, tell a comedy, and make it incredibly funny. So just amazing that on his first his first go into directing films, he is able to essentially create a subgenre that has mm-hmm. now become such a dominant force uh, in TV and in film. So that's amazing. And then let's talk about the cast. Rob Reiner, of course, is in it as the uh, documentary filmmaker. I wish he um, did more acting, honestly. Even nowadays, he's still good. Like he was in Wolf of Wall Street, and he's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wish I wish he would have done that too. Especially because I mean, he had the streak, and then he kept directing fairly consistently up through the two thousands, and then 
I think after that he sort of had stopped. But yeah, it would have been nice for him to shift back into uh, doing his acting, doing performances. But yeah, we have Rob Reiner, Michael McKean, our boy Chuck from Better Call Saul. Uh, Fantastic. Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, June Chadwick, Fred Willard, Fran Dresser, the sack after president herself. Um, so yeah. What are your... What's funny is that you're you're quoting Michael McKean as being our Chuck, but when I watched Better Call Saul, to me, he was the guy from the <laughs> Spinal Tap and That's from funny. Best in Show. And so that was me watching that show being like, I didn't know this guy could like act dramatically and he's really incredible. Act, yeah. Yeah. Like like doing an amazing like I knew he was really, really funny and was really, really talented in comedy movies, but oh my God, can this guy like put on a dramatic performance as well? Mm-hmm. So now you're having the opposite experience of watching him in comedy movies and you're like, wow, he's really, really funny. Exactly, yeah. I was you should see. It. You should watch Best in Show next. It's incredible. Okay, I'll put that on the list. As you but, should. Yeah, his comedy chops here incredible. We knew he could sing from Better Call Saul. Oh yeah. Um, but which must have been funny for you, knowing like the background of Spinal Tap and being the yeah. lead vocalist in that, and then being able to sing and show up everyone at karaoke. But yeah, I was amazed at uh, the comedy chops here. Especially because so much of the film, almost all of it, was improv. Like that yeah. to me is what's insane. Because mm-hmm. like, I mean, you can tell as you're watching through it, you're like, some of these things, it's just that has to be improv. Like the way they're interacting with each other, the way they're sort of like cutting into each other's lines, um, the pauses there as they're like thinking of where to take it next. I'm like, that has to be improv. I didn't so many of oh my god, dude! They, of so like many of the lines, especially in the the bit where they're talking about their drummers, it's so <laughs> good. It's it's one of those things that's best left unsolved. Yeah, we 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 don't know we don't know what happened, but we just left it as it was. You you can't really dust for vomit. <laughs> so so good, such good lines. Yeah, you can also tell too because they never do the office thing where they'll sit on it. And or do a camera pan to Jim or something like that. Mm-hmm. You can tell it's improv because whenever there's a really funny line like that, they cut because the actor is certainly broke afterwards. Um, so yeah, that's just that's amazing. The the other thing I want to point out about uh, Rob Reiner is he understands the comedic potential of British accents in both yeah. this and in uh, Princess Bride. <laughs> he uses that to its fullest. It's amazing. Yeah, so, incredible, brilliant. This did not need to be like a British band. <laughs> like mm-hmm. most, all of the actors are American, I believe. So yeah, they are. They just did that, <laughs> had them put on the accents, and they're really good too. Um, but yeah, it's just so many things are made <laughs> more funny by just having those absurd little uh, accents yeah. on there. Um, what were your favorite yeah. bits? So many amazing ones. Again, that's why I was thinking too of like, how are we going to talk about Spinal Tap? Because it's just going to devolve it's, into it's, us yeah. quoting the famous bits. So the, the 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 greatest strength of the movie, if you ask me, is that the plot is very much secondary to just nonstop bits of like, mm-hmm. they're literally, it's pretty much just like a collection of skits that are related to the fact that they're part of a band and then they just yeah. put them in a row. And that's why it works so well as a documentary. If you made it like a straight movie, it would just fall apart because you don't have a plot at all to keep it going. But as a, a rockumentary, if you will, <laughs> it's it works so well because documentaries themselves are just sort of very loose in their plot and you're just sort of following along with the band. And that's what they're trying to do with this is you're just following along and the weirdest stuff is happening and the most wackiest bits are happening and they're just so funny. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that because it is the the documentary format. It's able to have the liberty to not focus too much on a plot or like character arcs or anything like mm-hmm. that. There's elements of it, like we understand they're going on a North American tour, and their current album is not doing well at all. Um, so there's things like that, and then they're able to incorporate that into the the comedy as well, like the whole Yoko Ono riff, basically of like the mm-hmm. the girlfriend of uh, McKean's character coming in and then trying to take over, and then um, Nigel, I believe it is mm-hmm. the Christopher Guest character being upset yeah. about it. So they do have like some like plot elements, but then again, they're really just there to maximize the comedic potential of it and to show mm-hmm. and like the absurdity of this rock yeah. band. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about things. some. Talk about some great rock names, Nigel Tufnell, and is it is it David <laughs> Saint Gibbons? That's so good. It's Nigel so funny. <laughs> um, and then all the names for the drummers as well. David Saint <laughs> Hubbins, I'm sorry. So yeah, the some excellent bits in there. The one with the amp, I think, is uh, so good, so incredible. The one with the what? The one where it's uh, going oh, the to amps. the dial. Yeah. yeah. The dials all go to 11. This one goes to 11. Did you so know what? that this movie is the only movie on IMDb that is rated out of 11 out stars? Of 11, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that great? So good. So good. Um, but yeah, that whole bit was funny. He's like, why don't you just, why don't you just make it like 10 louder? Like it can still go to 10, but you just make 10 a little bit louder. Because this then, one goes to 11. Yeah, like seven seconds of dead air. And they go, but these go to 11. It's just so good. It's so funny. Oh, my God. But things like that. So it is interesting. Yeah, like the uh, interplay between the improv and then them having to set up these bits. Obviously, they needed to create an amp that has a dial going to 11. Mm-hmm. They had to create the um, clamshells and then figure out the whole thing of what if one of them get stuck trying to come out of it and for the whole performance he's stuck there and then at the end of the performance he's able he to get free yeah it's so funny i love the the little stonehenge that comes out because he drew inches instead of feet <laughs> yeah, and it's like mean. it's like a foot tall and the midgets are just dancing around it <laughs> so absurd i'm so glad you finally watched this movie nobody nobody has seen this movie and i can't make references to it to anybody because nobody's seen this movie it is great we can now uh make all the references we want it's also you gotta watch very the best show so i can make those references too i would try but literally i saw this on youtube like it's just fully uploaded on it is yeah yeah isn't that crazy so that's how i was able to watch it no excuses now if you want to see spinal tap you got a quick and easy way right there i also loved the bit where they were <laughs> trying to get on stage and they were lost in all the the tunnels backstage trying to get there they get directions from the one guy <laughs> and then they go around the corner and then end up right back there in front of them so good just so ridiculous um that was great i also love where they're at the military camp and they're talking to uh the fred willard and he's like uh so how about you guys going at 1900 hours right now it's uh 1830 hours so then they go oh so we go about 50 hours well 120 hours and he's like no it's actually about uh 30 minutes like they don't know military time which in of itself is a funny gag but they also the the amount of time they throw out doesn't line up at all to what he said in no way is there 50 or 120 
hours between 1830 and 1900. <laughs> like their math is so off. It makes no sense. It's so hilarious. <laughs> it's so good. I love the the bit where they're doing the interviews and uh, uh, what's his name? Rob Reiner is like listing their albums and like the reviews for them. And oh, he yeah. says, uh, <laughs> uh, the gospel according to Spinal Tap. And then the review is, uh, what day did the Lord create Spinal Tap and couldn't he have rested on that day too? <laughs> that was and, so good. and then the album cover was Shark Sandwich and the comment was just two words, shit sandwich. And they go, no, nah, you can't print that. Come on. You can't print that. Who said that? <laughs> yeah, that one was a good one. And then the it was probably the one of like, couldn't he have rested on that day? They were begrudgingly like, oh, that's a good comment. Like, oh, that was a good, clever. Very clever. It's pretty, it's pretty clever, yeah. <laughs> God, it's so good. I love that throughout the the documentary, you get glimpses of like the band's progression to that point, and they just go through every like <laughs> fad that happens there, like the the Beatles band, mm-hmm. "Give Me My Money," and then they do the uh, the like psychedelic rock thing. Yeah, the Flower Band. <laughs> yeah, the Flower Band. God, it's so, so funny. And then they have like touching moments too, like the, when they're in the little diner and Nigel and David like sing the song that they wrote when they were like twelve. Yeah, that was and it's really like good. there's no humor oh. in it. There's, it's not a joke at all. They're just like having like a real genuine moment where they talk about like being kids and like trying to create this thing mm-hmm. and like making the beat. It's just kind of like it's like a sweet moment in a movie that is otherwise ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Did you see? Other... Did you did you see Billy Crystal in the movie? Yes, I forget now what his thing he's, was, but I remember. I mean, he's his the voice he's, like he's the mime waiter, oh. and Dana Dana Carvey is the other mime waiter, and he's like telling Dana Carvey, like just speaking words in the back, just like telling him how to be a mime. And, and Dana Carvey isn't saying anything; he's like miming his actions. And Billy Crystal ends with "mime is money," and then tells him to go away. <laughs> yeah, that is good. I love that even from like the beginning, I want to know, I guess next uh, episode when we talk about when I hear Miss Sally, we can talk about the like Reiner, Billy Crystal uh, combo, but yeah, him having cameos in this and obviously Princess Bride. Um, I wonder where they like got their start together. Um, God, I'm trying to remember because I read about it somewhere. I know Billy Crystal was just a stand-up comedian for a long time and Rob Reiner probably just met him. Mm. So yeah, we can follow up on that. The last thing I want to talk about is all of the actors are actually like talented musicians. What did you think about the songs themselves? Cause a big part of the movie relies on like them convincingly playing like rock songs, right. like writing real rock songs and convincingly play them. Did you like the songs? I did. I thought, yeah, going all out with these absurd, ridiculous lyrics, but then like it, they're kind of catchy. Obviously like it, Michael McKean's voice is just amazing. So like you could, <laughs> see how these could be legitimate bangers if not for just how absurd and ridiculous they are but some of them also legitimately could have been like true rock anthems i think big bottom big bottoms yeah, yeah. big bottom big bottom <laughs> talk about bun cakes my, my girl's girl. got yeah. them it's yeah. just it's actually like, like i listened to that song and ironic because i think it's actually it is yeah but literally i mean queen's fat bottom girls i mean it's not like that far off so yeah. having big bottoms it has like clever wordplay too of the mm-hmm. how can i leave this behind i mean that's just good i mean come on i love the intro that nigel does to stonehenge though and the way he says stonehenge <laughs> who <Nothing>. were they <laughs> created such a thing and then they play like the they play the pan flute. <laughs> it is it's so good. Very hilarious. 
All right. How many deceased drummers out of five? I'm giving it a spontaneously combusted drummers. A full five, man. I think it's just so well made. I think the the determination to just stick to a loosely connected like series of bits and then tying it together by being a documentary it was so genius. And at the time, I think it was very revolutionary because nobody was doing it then. So right. Christopher Guest and Michael McKean were genius for coming up with these bits, and Rob Reiner tied it all together with this perfect little bow. I think it's one of the most influential pieces of comedy that has ever been created. So five out of five. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give it a 4.5 out of five. How could it you? is simply sensational. Where'd that half star go, bro? Where'd that half dead drummer go? <laughs> he, uh, he blew up. We couldn't find the other piece. The I would just say, I mean, yeah, the loose plotting of it, if there was just a bit more there, like you can't discredit it too much because, I mean, that's not the point of it. But if it, if they were able to make that whole element of the band, like breaking apart a bit and then coming back together, I felt it just happened too quickly. Um, so had that been fleshed out a little bit more and had a bit more of a punch to it, then it would have been elevated to a five, I think. But the comedy itself, I mean, that, yeah, it's just five to five stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Like every bit is hilarious. Even the like end credits thing that they do um, with those, like, I guess what were bloopers or things that they couldn't fit into the main film itself. Mm-hmm. Like, that stuff is just hilarious. Oh my God, dude, the black album <laughs> as opposed to the white album. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just void. It could be non blacker. It's just, they <laughs> go to do the press conference and it's just a bunch of black albums around them that look like nothing. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Yeah. Any great bits. Okay, moving on to what was not his next film, but the next bona fide hit and classic is Stand By Me, 1986 film, adaptation of Stephen King's novella, The Body, that being a coming-of-age story set in 1959, which is notable because Rob Reiner was 12, the same age as the characters, so he was able to draw a lot from his own film. He's gone on record to say this is one of the films that means the most to him because it drew so much from his own personal experience in his own childhood. So there we have that with the, the cast, quite a collection of uh, stars at their young age, Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, who is the fourth guy, the fourth kid, uh, Chris O'Connell, Chris O'Donnell. I think that's right. No, Chris O'Donnell was Robin, Chris something. Something O'Connell. Let me look it up. It's something O'Connell. Yeah. Because Chris O'Donnell was was Robin. (laughs) Um, So these four young actors playing the main parts. Jerry O'Connell. Good guy. Jerry O'Connell. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Um, So they out there searching for a dead body going on an adventure as one does with your group of friends right before you hit the teenage years. I forget if they were specifically, if they were about to go into junior high or high school or whatever it was. Um, Something like that. But yeah, they're on the precipice of like aging up into a new phase of like childhood, teenagehood. Um, And so we go on this one last adventure together. So I have seen this a couple times before. I didn't Mm -hmm. rewatch it for this uh, Rob Reiner episode because it wasn't as uh, easily accessible as uh, the other things. But it was on uh, Tubi. Be watching it. Yeah, it was on Tubi. Well, I don't have Tubi, but that was with ads too, wasn't it? Yeah, but you you just kind of deal with it, I guess. 
yeah, the old fashioned way. But yeah. uh, so you did rewatch it on Tubi. I did because um, I had not seen it in a long, long time. It was the one that I was like, I for sure need to watch this one over the other two for this episode because I have not seen Stand By Me in probably like eight years. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is a long time. I remember um, a lot of like the big moments, like the train dodge and him going train <laughs> and things like that. But I don't remember a lot of like Kiefer Sutherland's plot line or like a lot of the dramatic moments, like the conversations they were having. So I definitely like had to rewatch it. Gotcha. But uh, it's great. It starts with Richard Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus. And he's a. Uh, He's the older version of Will Wheaton's character, and he's reading the the newspaper that says uh, Chris Chambers was shot. And so he's like just sitting in his car, and he's like, man, back in the summer of 1959. And he just like goes into it. And uh, uh, God, I was iffy on it when it first started, because the movie is, first of all, it's shot very much in a little bit of an odd way. It feels very like like it's like a little high exposed, so it feels very dreamy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I'm watching a TV movie from the '80s a little bit, if that makes any sense. Sure. But as it went on, I came to like it. Like I kind of like the dreamy aspect of it because it is very much a memory in Will Wheaton's character's mind, and everything right. is heightened for that purpose. So I ended up liking it as it went on, and then I also felt a little iffy because at first the kids when they were acting, it wasn't as snappy and like witty as I remember it being. And I was like, Ooh, I don't know if like their performances or like the dialogue is like working as well. But then as it went along, I was like, okay, this is fantastic. Like the dynamic they have together, the four of them is incredible. Like the, the chemistry they all have together. It feels like real friendship. There's only, there's only one movie I can say that's like a buddy movie that I think is like the perfect buddy movie. And it's city slickers. Like I think, the three of the guys in, this, in that movie, the chemistry they have, it feels like I'm actually watching Real Friends, which is fantastic. And this is like a close second is watching these kids act together and like gotcha. being best friends with each other. And I, I really like that. The actual plot itself of them wanting to go see a, a dead body. I mean, it's just it's the perfect like, what is it? Red herring plot of like they just need to go on an adventure together. And on that adventure, they can like learn more about themselves and each other which is important in itself. Mm-hmm. And that's like why it's so successful as a movie is that it doesn't really matter if they find the body or not. I mean, they do, but it doesn't fucking matter. What matters is that they are on the road. They, it's a road trip movie. It's a literal journey that they go on and mm-hmm. they like are friends with each other. And I mean, I just thought it was great. I, I really like the movie. Having not seen it in a while, are there any moments that you remember that stick out to you of like greatness? Yeah, I mean, I think overall, it's just one of the best coming of age films. Oh, out yeah, there. for sure. For I mean, that recently you'd touch on there of like the chemistry between the boys, like the way that their conversation with each other, the way they're constantly like insulting or um, like ribbing each other of just always joking. Um, it's very much representative of like the actual friendship that you would have, um, especially like at that point in time. So I think that part of it was excellent. And then, yeah, just going on a journey where finding the body or not, yeah, is secondary to them all wrestling with their own demons and getting better understandings of themselves and of each other um, as they're at this like turning point in their, li- in their lives. That I think is just impeccably done. So 
overall, I think it's yeah one of the best coming-of-age stories out there. As for major scenes that stuck with me, like the train sequence, of course, I mean, that is iconic. Train! Um, it's so good. The whole leech sequence that has been burned into my brain. Really? Terrifying. Yes. I forgot that that happened until I rewatched the movie. I forgot that happened. It it freaked me out so much. Like, yeah, dude, I watched it when I was the leech on his balls. Like, the, leeches. <laughs> the leech on his yeah. balls is very scary. That is scary. And like, and like, he pulls it off general, and it's bleeding. Oh, I just hate. But then they did that. And I'm like, you could have, we could have avoided that. I would have absolutely fainted too. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, that's just good guy. Yeah, leech on the balls is pretty brutal. Yeah. So that's always like with me. Um, but then, yeah, like the Gordy uh and chris relationship like their friendship in particular mm. is like the heart of the story um and i think that is done extremely well because you have like gordy's dealing with his own like family stuff but then chris is as well and he's sort of seen as this like punk around town um and nobody is believing that he can get better that he can improve in any way um it's like one of those things of like you know, you're meeting the low expectations that you're given mm-hmm. that one conversation they have where he like breaks down to him. I forget the specifics of it, but they were talking about like that idea of like, Oh, I'm never going to be able to get out of this town. I'm never going to shake this reputation I have. Yeah. Um, Cause uh, Chris, uh, uh, remember they, they called him like a thief. Cause like there was money missing from the school right. and they all said he did it. And uh, he like went to the teacher and like, told the teacher it wasn't him and the teacher or no, he gave the money back cause he felt guilty cause he did take it and he gave the money to the teacher. And then the teacher pocketed the money and said that he stole it and like got him in trouble, even though she yeah. took the money and like he cried because like he was betrayed by like an adult figure. Cause right. they just, and like everybody believed her cause they expected him to be that person. Mm. They didn't expect him to like give the money back. Yeah. That's that's tough. But yeah, what I love about that scene and like an earlier scene as well, when, um, Gordy was like feeling upset and he's like, do you think I'm weird? And Chris is like, yeah, of course you're weird. But so what? Everyone's weird. Like Mm -hmm. just the way that they're able to support each other, I think is great, especially because like they're, it's a like young boys, young male friendship that we're seeing. So we get to see like them insulting each other, saying Mm -hmm. completely out of pocket things, like absolutely ridiculous stuff, which Mm -hmm. like is authentic, right? They're unfiltered, like dynamic with each other. But then we also get to see a flip side where they're genuinely supporting each other and able to confide in each other. And Chris is like breaking down, crying and um, getting support from Gordy. So I love that we get to see that dimension of the friendship as well. I think it's um, like a well-rounded portrait of that. So that was another thing that had always stuck with me Mm -hmm. as well. So yeah, those are the major moments for me. Anything on rewatch that you absolutely adored? The end, I mean, do you remember crying at all watching this movie ever? No. Did you end up crying at the the very ending? The end kind of got me because I forgot how it ended. And I remember I remember it was like something to do with the it goes back to the present day and like he finishes like writing the story and like yeah. goes out with his kids. And I forget what it is he writes. And he writes like the last lines of the, like the little short story he's writing is stark silence like he's no longer narrating it's just a shot on the screen as he types it and there's complete silence other than the typing and it's uh it's uh i never had any better friends than the friends i had when i was 12 and then he writes god does anybody and then that's it 
and I was like, damn. It like it hits really hard. Yeah. With with just the expectation of it being a narration because it's been narration the entire time and then just the stark silence of it. Like it 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 like feels heavier. And like I teared up a little bit. It was really, really good. Really solid choice to end that how to end that movie. Yeah, and then stand by me like plays. <laughs> as it uh as it yeah, I think that element too, because when I first seen it, it was obviously much closer to that age but now that we are <laughs> further away from being, being old, older and looking back at that time yeah. it's it's much more emotionally potent when you're when exactly. you are 12 and you watch stand by me you're like yeah that was fun that was a cool adventure it doesn't hit as hard as like the remembrance of that age exactly because that's what the point of the movie is that's why so many adults like the movie even though it's a movie about kids going on an adventure right which i think is an interesting point as well it's not really like a coming age story for kids necessarily it's like four adults yeah it's it's remembering yeah it's remembering when you did come of age which is like no not many movies do that very true and it's fully leaned into that perspective because the entire thing is a heightened version of what probably did happen narrated from will wheaton's character's perspective Mm -hmm. yeah very true i think the um the other thing too like knowing river phoenix's real life fate like that also makes the yeah. whole elements of like the chris character very, dying very young um exactly so that adds another like unfortunate emotional layer on top of it all um mm. but yeah extremely well done amazing film the the one element i remember too of like it is like as we mentioned like for adults um to look back on this time but it does still lean into like the childish elements and showing like the kid's imagination at this time, like the whole uh, story that Gordy's telling with the uh, the pie eating contest mm-hmm. that ends in a whole vomit extravaganza. What were your thoughts on that? Knowing that you aren't the biggest fan of a uh, vomit gags. I forgot that that scene even happened in the movie. Like I forgot he had filmed that. And so yeah. when it was going on, I was like, Oh, I remember this. And I enjoyed it. Like, I think the heightened version of it and like the vomit being blue definitely helps being more <laughs> stomachable, but like watching it and like the cartoonishness of it and like the, the obvious, like it's obvious that the hose is behind their mouth spewing like, cause the, the way they're positioned, I think it was cartoonish enough to where it was very, very fun. Gotcha. And it like, it like made his storytelling better. Awesome. All right. So how many blueberry pie barfaramas out of five? I'm going to give this one a four and a half. All right. I am agreeing with that. I'm giving it a 4.5, which is just based on the uh, the rating that I gave it the last time I'd seen it, like a couple years ago. Um, so yeah, 4.5 for Stand By Me. Now, were you able to catch The Princess Bride? I sure did rewatch it. What a fucking movie. Oh, my God. Oh my god, it's, it's so thing. good. It starts off so silly and cartoonish, and it's just it hits so hard by the end. Oh my god, every 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 second of this movie is perfection. Every fucking second. <laughs> my god, you were there is not me. there is not a moment in this movie that is not good. Not a single moment. Every single shot in this movie is perfect. Every every that, beat. But fuck you. This movie's amazing. Fuck you. <laughs> You're a huge fan. Um, yeah, Princess Bride, 1987. 
it's uh william goldman adapted his own book which is hilarious what a legend yeah um and it's very different from the book too from what i hear i have not read it but mm-hmm. very different take on it um but we get that same sort of framing device approach of uh, young Fred Savage is sick in bed, just wants to play games. And then the grandpa comes over and wants to read a special story that his father had read to him. So he goes ahead and uh, makes the pitch. The kid is like, all yeah. right, we'll try and listen to it. And then that's when we get the princess bride. Yeah. So you know what's it. great is is this whole movie, the whole bit of like the actual story going on, would seem so cartoonish and silly if you didn't have that framing device. Like imagine if they leaned into that fairy tale setting of it being ridiculous and like silly without that device. It wouldn't, Mm -hmm. it would not be as watchable. So like having that device there gives them the excuse to be so cartoonish with it. And it's great. Right. it's It's a fairy tale. Like you're, you're watching a real fairy tale happen. Exactly. And I think the, it also allows you to have the Fred Savage character be like a little bit cynical about it and some of the elements He's like not entirely fond of like obviously the, the kissing. Whole kissing thing. Yeah, the kissing book. There's kissing? <laughs> but other elements too where he's like, oh, like this part isn't as interesting or oh, that's ridiculous. You're able to see that idea of like, oh, this fairy tale is absurd. But he, as the audience hopefully should, like what they're wanting us to do is to be able to actually invest in the fairy tale despite its absurdity and despite knowing like it is just some like story within the story we're not even meant to be taking these characters as real just like these fictional characters um that is being read about to a kid but we're supposed to have the same level of connection to them that the kid actually end up, ends up developing so i think that framing device also helps lend it some charm but then also allows it to vocalize some of the doubts or some of the like cynicism or hesitance audience the audience might have for the fairy tale itself, but then you just end up getting swept along with it and you go mm-hmm. for the ride and it's an excellent ride. Yes. Yes, it is. Flawless. So yeah. I would say I'll agree with you. The first 40 minutes, a hundred percent flawless, like actually flawless. There's, we talk about like the rare films that are just on like the highest possible level, like high and low. The first hour of that genuinely flawless. The first 40 minutes of this genuinely flawless. Like it's crazy. So the the one thing I want to mention too, like the fairy tale romance, the way that they speed run through that of their like chemistry, them falling in love with each other. That's insane. Great. I've never it's seen great. it's like in two minutes and it's just done and you believe it, you buy it and you want them to end up together. Bro, I'm it's saying great. as you wish. Oh, so good. I know. That's amazing. But just, I mean, that's how you do the speed run. You get those incredible glamour shots, right? The lighting looks incredible. You get mm-hmm. insanely hot actors just ridiculous you get them just staring at each other like these piercing gazes that are crazy and then that shot where the sunset is oh the sunset shot is the best kissing. shot that's that's the amazing that's the money shot right there absolutely total money shot beautiful amazing so that stuff is incredible and then the whole bit with the i forget what they're called but um the vizini and then andre the giant and then you go, um, that little group. Fezzik. Yeah. Inigo Montoya, yeah. Fezzik, and Vizzini. There you go. But they had a specific name. They were called something. Did like they? Three. I thought they were, because someone had mentioned it, like an innkeeper or something like that later on in the film. They were like, oh, I'll bring the uh, whoever. And then the guy was like, I am one of those 
people in that team. Um, but anyway, they, them kidnapping Buttercup and then Wesley going after them. All of that's just amazing. Like the having them take on each of them individually, doing a duel with an ego, doing a test of strength, like hand to hand combat with Fizzini, and then doing the battle of wits or Fezzik with, and then the battle of wits with Fizzini. That is just an amazing approach to it. And each of them were thrilling and funny and incredible mm-hmm. and entertaining. Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. Incredible. I mean, the, the, the sword fight alone, it's just so thrilling to watch. The The dynamic they have, the, the dialogue they have, it's so good. There's something that you don't know. I am actually right-handed. There's something you don't know either. I'm right-handed as well. It's yeah. so great. Oh, this stuff was, yeah, very fun. The way they do that, all the little flourishes they do as well. As all of all of Wesley's dialogue is top tier. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, Who all the dialogue, the pretty much, in this whole thing is dialogue. incredible. But yeah, they're um, he always has those like snappy, witty remarks. Um, mm-hmm. but I also think knowing, like them knowing, Inigo Montoya is going to become one of the, like, good characters, right? One of our, uh side characters he's going to yeah that's the word hero so he's gonna end up becoming one of our heroes that we're rooting for Mm -hmm. he's starting out uh, in opposition to wesley but the way that they frame him of he's an honorable man who's gonna allow him to get up wesley to get up the cliff he's not gonna try and like cut the rope or throw him off or anything and then he's gonna give him a breather he's gonna allow him to like catch his breath so they can be more of a fair fight but then that also gives us the opportunity to have him open up about himself. And so he mentions, like, he asks him, hey, do you have six fingers on your hand? And then he's able to explain that story of his father being killed and him getting the scar and him being on this revenge quest. So we're able to emotionally invest in his character. And then we want to see him, like, we obviously want Wesley to win the duel, but we don't want Inigo to get killed. So as the duel happens, then he just gets knocked out. When he comes back later on, we're already with him of like liking this character, wanting him to be able to pursue that revenge quest, especially when, you know, later on we see the guy with the six fingers. Mm-hmm. So that we know, okay, that guy's out there. So we got to see Inigo cross paths with him. Mm-hmm. It's just really well done to like yeah. have, have him be so charismatic, so entertaining, so likable and honorable. Also, Mandy Patinkin is so cool. He is. I mean, like, yeah, Wesley's great and all this, but he really does steal the show, I think, in the uh, in this film. Yeah, so, for sure. That's great. And then the Battle of Wits. I remember being so mind blown by this, watching it for the first time as a kid of like, you can do that. My man just built up a resistance to the poison. Yeah. I was I was trying to do the same thing. I was like, which cup is it? Like, how is he going to do it? Um, there has to be some trick to it. And the trick is... There's not. He just he poisoned yeah. both cups, and then he had he had built up immunity. So, yeah, what a, what a what a phenomenal performance by Wallace Shawn. You can never say inconceivable ever again. I know. Yeah, he is. He owns that word. It's his when word. He yeah. says inconceivable. You just immediately go back to that. It's um, yeah. If you were to say the word inconceivable in public, like I think eight <laughs> out of ten people would think of that movie instinctually. Mm-hmm. It's insane how much a word can just cement itself 
in pop culture like this. It's great. But yeah, what a great scene. What a <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking about it. It's so funny. <laughs> I clearly can't choose to come in front of you. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And then he does the uh I'm only getting started. <laughs> Quick, what's that? And then he turns yeah, and he goes, switches what? the gummy. <laughs> <laughs> like it's so ridiculous. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have that. We have Buttercup and Wesley reuniting. Um and then finally him revealing himself. The, uh, as you wish. As he falls the down the hill. And then she follows him and also falls down the hill. Mm-hmm. So we have that. We have them going through the forest. Uh, that was a pretty good... I forget what the forest itself was called, but some like scary... Daunting. Fire swamp. Yeah, there you go. The fire swamp. And she's it has like, the, the fire spurts, the lightning sand, and the rodents of unusual sizes. <laughs> there you go. And she's like, we'll never survive. And he's like, nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has. And then they go through there. They're walking through. They're able to reconnect a little bit. But then we get those rodents of unusual size. They are unusually sized. (laughs) Very true. Um, That's just hilarious. I love that bit so much. No, I love the... They exist. Then he gets attacked. (laughs) I love the bit of them coming out of the fire swamp and Humperdinck is already there. And he's like, he, he like demands to hand over the princess and then wesley goes no we've learned the secrets of the fire swamp we could live there for many years <laughs> i think that's great yeah i love all, also like humperdink on his detective stuff like him just going around doing little twirls and being like they must have gone this way yeah i think that's a fight a- broke out between a, a man and a giant <laughs> And he's like, it's funny because he's right every time. I know, yeah, he's a hundred percent correct. <laughs> he's like a he's like a very good tracker. Yeah, they play like ironically absurd and like terrible at this job, but was he's actually very he's good so at tracking. Accurate, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that whole thing's great. Um, this is a section that I don't, I don't think is like firing on all cylinders and is a hundred percent. Fuck you. The whole like torture bit, all that stuff. Um, it's scary. What are you talking about? Yeah. No, it's very scary. It scared me as a kid when he gets the life sucked out of him to do the wide I shot mean, of the yeah, machine turning. Sense, but since then, I love when the henchman comes down and he goes, "He's like, how are you doing? <clears throat> how are you doing?" He like clears his throat. Yeah, that's a phenomenal bit. I love that. Um, yeah, this one that the moments like that, I think, showcase how effective this is because it is sort of you know it's like a parody of fairy tales, but the best parodies are the ones that are able to lovingly recreate the tropes of the genre while also being able to poke fun at some of them. So that's like a perfect Mm -hmm. example of like, oh, you expect this haggard looking old fella, like either a witch or um, a gentleman like that to come in and have this hoarse voice, but then he just needed to cough it out and he talks fine. Like that, just playing off those expectations is always fun. Um, So yeah, I think this does an excellent job at doing what a parody should. So overall, though, this is a moment where it's just the chemistry that Wesley has with like Inigo and with um, Fezzik. It's just so good. And since it's mm-hmm. so absent at this part of the film, I'm like longing for it. I miss it. Even though I know like we need to have their separation. I think the stuff with like Buttercup and Humperdinck, I think that uh, is really well done. It's just, and then she has the dream where she's the queen, and what does yeah. the what does the old lady yell at her? 
Uh, God, I, I can't remember. I can't remember either. And she said it so often. Yeah, she did. She said it like <laughs> 10 times. Remember. Um, But yeah. But ultimately, though, yeah, this is the one part where I'm like, mm, not quite as hitting those levels of perfection as the rest of it. But no, once we ridiculous. get Fezzik and then they go re- resurrecting Wesley, and then we have Miracle Max, Billy Crystal comes. Miracle in. Max. We're so right good. back to it. So amazing. He's not dead. He's mostly dead. <laughs> Yeah, that whole stuff is amazing. The, well, then he the takes the, the the pump thing and he puts it in his mouth and just pumps air into him. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, that's a funny little physical gag. Um, but yeah, when his wife comes out, and he's like, witch, I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Billy Crystal's amazing. Yeah, that whole bit's great. And then even later on, like the physical comedy of Wesley being... <laughs> Like most of his body still being asleep, and so he can only like move his head, and so they're trying to explain the plan to him, and he has to, they have to help him look over the the castle wall. And Fezzik um, is like being very supportive. He's like, "Look, you moved your head. That's fantastic." <laughs> yeah, all of it just so well done there. The comedy just consistently incredible. Oh my god, dude, the priest <laughs> saying marriage, marriage. <laughs> It's so funny. I love it so much. I love I love when the king is walking her back to her room and she she says, she says, You've been so lovely to me. I'm gonna go kill myself now. <laughs> and he goes, That's nice, and then walks away. Yeah, that's great. The earlier moment too, when he's like trying to explain Wesley's dead. So he's like, please consider me an alternative to suicide. So well done. Like everyone just executes their lines amazingly in this. Um, Very much so. But yeah. And then we shift back into the more serious moments, like Inigo trying to get his revenge, like his screams, like such genuine screams of trying to get Fezzik's help to open the door. Like so intense. Mm-hmm. And then when he's chasing him down. He's getting away. He's getting away, Fezzik. He, when uh. he's chasing him down and then he gets stabbed, like the throwing knife hits him. And then we're like, oh no, he's not going to be able to finish his mission. The other guy explaining it too, of like, wow, you went all this way. It's been your whole life trying to get to me and then now you're going to die before you can even complete it. How sad. But then, Also, Christopher Guest is fantastic in this movie. He's such a good villain. He really is. Dastardly. <laughs> so true. Like, I do yeah, love that bit love where Inigo Montoya finally gets to say his line to him and he just stops and turns and runs. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Um, but yeah, and then finally, Inigo is able to uh, repeat his... Uh, his call yeah and then he just says says it over and over and it just gets more and more fantastic and then the guy says i'll give you anything 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 you want and then you want to says i want my father back you son of a bitch and stabs him it's so good yeah oh my god one of the best moments in cinema history (laughs) the the fulfillment of that vengeance is is fantastic and Mm -hmm. like this just feels so so satisfying to get revenge with very little consequence. <laughs> True. Because, yeah, I mean, they frame that guy. He's helping the evil king. He's a total schmuck, total mm-hmm. villain. So no qualms about him coming and taking him down. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he was able to avenge his father. There you go. Yeah. And then we have uh, Wesley's bluff of him still being like his body's mostly asleep. So he just does the most intense hardcore yeah. to this no pain I've never seen. to the pain 
Yeah. And then everything after that, he's going to leave him his ears so he can hear all hear the, the, the screams, screams of children. Of the children. <laughs> so vicious. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's the Dread Pirate Roberts. Drop your sword. And then he does. Great line. Yeah. So, yeah. Fantastic. I think my one qualm with the movie, if I had any, there was a, a point brought up by Jason Siegel's character in How I Met Your Mother about no. the movie because they're <laughs> they're talking about the Princess Bride in the show. Mm-hmm. And Jason Siegel's character says at the end of the movie, uh, Fezzik comes with the horses and Inigo says, Fezzik, you did something right. And my one qualm is the same as him, which is Fezzik has been doing things right the whole movie. How are you just now giving him credit just for finding horses? Right. That's my one qualm is I don't like that line where he says, Fezzik, you did something right. Yeah, I agree too. I thought that was just like mean. Like even if he was failing throughout the whole thing, it's like, come on, you don't have to say that. It could well, be one it of just, It would have made more like sense it. if he was failing, but he wasn't. Fezzik was killing it the whole time. Right. Yeah, I don't know. That, uh, that did seem odd, but who knows? Maybe that's their- You want to go back where I found you? In Greenland? Shout out to Greenland. Shout there out to Greenland. Insult the uh, physics homeland. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then we get that fairytale ending. You know, they ride off on horses into the sunset. And then you get the true love's kiss. And the boy does want to hear it this time. So beautiful stuff. And then he wants the grandpa to come and read it back to him the next day. And the grandpa turns and goes... As you wish. So good. Dude, I teared up at that. Amazing. So it's the best ending to that movie. Brilliant choice. So lovely. So sweet. I mean, how can you feel amazing after that? Incredible. (sighs) All right. How many Dread Pirate Roberts out of five are you? Full five, man. Full five. He's giving it a full bloody five. I'm giving it. A 4.5. You son of a bitch. Just give in. I got to go with how I feel. Again, like I said, that middle section, it uh, went down a little bit. But again, the first 40 minutes, so amazing. If you don't give one Harry Met Sally a five when we talk about it next time, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to put a gun to your head and blow your brains on ever. He says, I mean, I'll rewatch it. I remember really liking it. I just, I went back through. I never gave it a rating whenever I had it. Seen it, rate so it, I don't rate know it now. Dead. You will rate it a five uh, out of five, or you will time. be dead. We'll see. So it'll be dependent on how I feel about it now. I will but it. there we go. I gave three four point fives, and you gave two fives, and then a four point five. So we can solidly say that uh, the streak this is a, a strong streak. The first three, yep, absolutely living up, absolutely the, uh, legendary status. So. We will yep. see in our next part on Rob Reiner when we talk about when Harry met Sally. I can't wait for you to. Five. I can't wait for you to watch a few good men. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're watching Misery and then a few good men, which I'm very excited for. I'm so excited for you to watch a few good men. We should do a movie night or something. I think you're gonna love it. I the dialogue sure is so good. I mean, yeah, it's anyway, Sorcerer, it's Jack Nicholson, it's Tom Cruise, and yeah. the Rob Reiner touch as well. All those. Yeah, it's a lawyer sure. movie. I'm going to love it. Yeah, courtroom drama. It's going to be great. I'm going to be very happy with it. It is. Anyway, that's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars whenever podcast app you're listening to, and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great rest of your day.